Nobody wins unless everybody wins, Springsteen likes to say. This little movie is a big winner. That's from Joe Morgenstern of the Wall Street Journal. And also, this a review here from Rob Harvilla of The Ringer. This movie is entirely devoted to capturing what makes Springsteen so beloved and enduring and willing to risk looking uncool to get there. It's not trying to convert you, but it does a fine job of depicting all that that entails. That's right, we're talking about Blinded by the Light, one of the films I've been most looking forward to this summer. Thanks again for always checking us out here on Cinephile. Uh, if you haven't yet, subscribe, rate, and review. That's how we keep Cinephile rolling. As I've been imploring all of you, please do tell all your friends, get those subscriptions up. They don't have to listen, just subscribe. It's all we care about. And um, here's a few reviews here as well that we appreciate. This one here from Joey's Sweats. Adnan good, funny, clever, insightful, makes me laugh, makes me think. I love the Bada Binge, but can't help wondering if he ever plans on bringing back a brilliant creation from his ESPN days, Verkin Overtime. <laughs> Appreciate that. I'm sure I know who wrote that as well. Uh, the only movie pod you need. I'm an Adnan guy, always entertaining, funny, and informative. I have a running list of movies to watch. Also went back and rewatched every episode of Breaking Bad and The Sopranos because of the Bada Binge. Five stars. That's from The Bad Guy, 127. Appreciate that. Uh, Riz Connecticut, or Riz CT. Love Sopranos segment. Brings me back. Uh, Adrian C41. This is the best movie podcast out there. Love the insight and fun Adnan brings every episode. The guests are always great. Big fan of the Bada Binge segment. I'm telling you right now, man, I wasn't sure about the Sopranos segment, but props to Chris Corcoran. He said to us that it'll be a good idea to do, and so far it has been great. Also here from JPM1015, love, love, love this podcast. One of the few I subscribe to. Adnan's movie knowledge, depth of his cinematic library experiences continue to impress. Uh, if I have one critique, the Sopranos recaps a little bit too inside. Okay. I love the show, consider it the best TV series ever, but I don't recall every episode. Sometimes tap out when it gets to that segment. Love the Mount Rushmore discussion every week, gets you thinking. How did you not include Fargo on your list of movies about a city or location? It's a great point, JPM 1015. Of course, Fargo immortalized forever by the Coen brothers. Uh, that was a previous episode. And of course, you can always listen to previous episodes on Cinephile. We were talking about movies that make you think of a location. Certainly, Fargo is one of those. Um, a couple things before we get to our review of Blinded by the Light. By the way, our Mount Rushmore is going to be movies inspired by music, because of course that's what Blinded by the Light is all about, being inspired by the music of Bruce Springsteen. I watched The Harder They Fall again. It was on TCM. I hadn't seen him forever. Boxing movie from 1956. Eddie Willis played by Humphrey Bogart and uh, Nick Belko, Rod Steiger. That's a shout out to Scott Rogowski, my partner on Change Up on the Zone. He loves Steiger. If you like Rod Steiger, I'm telling you right now, The Harder They Fall, pretty good boxing movie. I love Bogart, which is why I watched it. It was on TCM last Friday. Shout out to our man, Ben Mankwitz. And speaking of CNN's The Movies on the Golden Age was fabulous this past Sunday. Two hours. Uh, a couple of moments I really loved. And talking about Out of the Past, which is one of my favorite film noirs and Probably my favorite Mitchum movie. Scorsese's talking about how much he loves this fight scene because the look on Greer, Jane Greer's face as the two guys are fighting, and then they kiss, and there's this camera movement as the door opens. He said, "It's God, it's so um, sensual." And he just thinks about that movement all the time. He says he's never forgotten that shot and the way the camera worked. They also talk about on the waterfront. Scorsese says that's the first movie I ever saw 
where people looked like my dad or people who grew up around my dad, working class guys, getting things done. You hear De Niro talking about Brando, what an influence he was. Also, Angelica Houston talking about the Maltese Falcon, the fact that her dad was not a particularly big fan of actors, but he loved Bogart because he was a man of action. He was so decisive, and clearly that was uh, well demonstrated in the Maltese Falcon. And also Hitchcock's Vertigo, they had a quick snippet of it. And Holly Hunter, the Academy Awarding actress from The Piano, says, I could watch it every day and still find it enigmatic. It's such a puzzle of a movie, but that's what makes it so great is you can watch it over and over and still not totally feel like you get it. Uh, Really good stuff there from the movies. And Ben Mankiewicz, when they talked about Casablanca, uh, they mentioned the scene where the Germans start singing the anthem. And Bogart, of course, famously says, I stick my neck out for nobody. But when Victor Laszlo wants him to start playing the French theme, uh, you see the musicians quickly look to Bogart and he gives that head nod. And as Mankiewicz said in the documentary, he said, oh, okay, I guess Bogart's in the war now. Like <laughs> that, That's his way of acknowledging that he's now a patriot. So really good stuff there from the movies. Joe, did you watch all the segments uh, from CNN's The Movies? I feel like I missed the 60s because that was unfortunately the weekend of the terrible shootings. And I think CNN preempted their coverage that night for uh, Anderson Cooper and uh, the other guys. But did you watch every uh, episode so far? No, I haven't seen the 60s yet either, which I'm really excited about. I've seen all the other ones. Uh, I think my favorite, just because more recency bias, was the 2000s uh, to today. But I'm really excited. I hope that they air it soon, the 60s. I know. I want to know when it's going to air too. Hopefully this Sunday we can catch that. All right, time now for our featured review. By the way, our special guest is great. Kristen Baldwin is our TV critic from Entertainment Weekly. She also has a great podcast, which is available through Cadence 13. Joe and her go way back from his time at EW, and she's awesome. She's going to tell you why Fleabag is the show to watch why the Larry Sanders show remains criminally underrated and why it was so important in TV annals. She'll tell you what the greatest TV show is of all time. Might be interested to hear her answer. Uh, Talk to La Marvelous' Maisel. What chance Barry has of pulling off a couple of upsets. So Kristen's great. She's going to join us momentarily. First, though, I want to talk about Blinded by the Light, the film from Grinder Chadda, which is one of my favorite films of the year and the feel-good movie of the summer. It's about a frustrated British teen named Javed who's struggling between his own desires and those of his concerns Pakistani parents, particularly his father, who tells Javed he'll find him a wife. He tells him to stay away from girls. He tells him to make friends with Jews because he says that they're smart and have influence. And he says to not think of writing as a profession since no Pakistanis do so. So he's disenchanted and frustrated by his circumstances. A friend of his gives him a Bruce Springsteen cassette tape. This, of course, is set in the 80s in England. And it's akin to giving... I mean, a traveler in the desert, a glass of water, or a a man on a quest finding the Holy Grail. Because now the movie comes thrillingly alive as the beats of Dancing to the Dark speak to Javed's soul. Interesting visual choice Grinder Chadda does here of having the lyrics appear on screen. It's a little bit like much music pop-up video as you see the words up there. Maybe some might find it cheesy, but I actually found it effective because it shows you how the power of Springsteen's lyrics are affecting this young man. And now the conflict really deepens as Javed is torn between the passions of his soul man, Bruce, he's now his his prophet, and his father, who thinks Springsteen is an American and a Jew, who is irrelevant. Uh, There's a teacher who believes in Javed's writing, and she sees that early passion in him. It shows why teachers are so important in someone's life. He's got his best friend, who's a musician, who Javed writes lyrics for. There's a love interest who's white and thus has to remain a secret from her parents, from his parents, rather. Uh, He's got a supportive sister who has her own secrets as well, has to hide from her dad. 
uh, and then the story develops. And it's honestly, it's a coming of age story with a ton of heart. And I thought it was beautifully played, really well acted. The acting is top notch across the board. Complete no name cast. But Vivek Kalra is a real revelation as the title character. Uh, my only quibble about the film: the father was a little bit too one dimensional. Uh, he could have been given a little bit more nuance, but I did think Colvinder Aguirre uh, is the actor playing the dad did a solid job with it. And I did like, you know, once you get to that inevitable transformation uh, and the moment where he tries to connect with his son as best as he can. But, I mean, to think about this is a story about an Anglo-Pakistani man set in Margaret Thatcher era England. I mean, this is a true period piece. And they've got the, not only, of course, the music down, but just the, the look of it and the clothing. And, of course, Grinder Judd, if you don't know her work, she directed Bennett Like Beckham, which was a huge hit years ago. And, and this one's expected to do well as well. It was a huge hit at Sundance. And honestly, what I appreciate most about the film is it shows the importance of magic being in the arts. And sometimes when you come from certain cultures, and of course my family's from Pakistan, is that, you know, they may not appreciate the arts. It's always about being a doctor or a lawyer or engineering or that kind of thing. But in this case, you know, you can appreciate how nice it is to have somebody who appreciates writing and acting and all that that can entail. And the whole time you're watching the film, like I said, the first 20 or 30 establishes it. Once you hear his dancing in the dark, it kicks up another notch. And the whole time I'm waiting, all right, when do we get to the Born to Run montage? Like, that's going to be like the Raging Bull sequence of this movie. Um, this is like Jake LaMotta versus Sugar Ray Robinson. This is the centerpiece. And it does not disappoint. The scene where Javin and his son play it, and they just go running through the halls. I mean, it, it literally... If you even have a modicum of interest in Bruce Springsteen, you will be pumping your fist in the theater, wanting to run out immediately and telling everybody that, you know, the highways jam with broken heroes and a last chance power drive. But you believe in the magic of movies and you believe in the magic of Bruce. That Born to Run sequence is absolute movie magic. And that, of course, comes with a major caveat, which is this. You'd better like Springsteen. Otherwise, you're going to hate this movie. <laughs> because Springsteen's music, listen, with a hungry heart is not exactly the most hard-hitting anthem. But, you know, if you don't like his music, you're really going to find the story a bit of a reach. If you like the music, though, like a Michael Lombardi or a Mike Tarico or an Anish Shroff, you're going to love this movie. And uh, I do like Springsteen more than the average folk. And that's why I thought it was a really good movie. It ends on a beautiful note. You've seen it before. You've seen these kinds of stories before, but not quite like this. And that's why I'm giving this film three and a half Maple Leafs. I honestly really love this film a lot. Blinded by the Light. I highly recommend it to everybody. Joe, I know you're going to see it at some point. Let's hopefully you see it sooner rather than later. Oh, yeah, 100%. I Okay, first, really big Springsteen fan. Can't go wrong there. Also, really like Haley Atwell, and I'll go out of my way to watch her in movies. Yes, that's right. That's right. Good to have Haley Atwell on the show. You're right. Okay, so it wasn't complete unknown. You're aware of who some of these people are. That's good. Um, I'm curious to see how the film will do because it's interesting. The box office show, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, has actually been a disappointment at the box office, and so it may be tough for Blinded by the Light to find a voice, but clearly in this story... Uh, Javed finds Springsteen's voice, and that's what inspires him. And uh, it really is a really special movie. All right, let's get to some entertainment news. Peter Father, the star of Easy Rider, dead at the age of 79, became a counterculture icon, two-time Oscar nominee, co-wrote, produced, and starred in Easy Rider. And then he showed Hollywood he could act about three decades later in Yuli's Gold. Dying this past Friday from lung cancer at his home in Los Angeles, he was 79 years of age. Obviously, Easy Rider is the headline because... That was such a seminal film within Hollywood. But honestly, Yuli's goal to me was his best performance. I absolutely love that film from Victor Nunez was the director. Came out back in 1997. If you've never seen it, go find it. 
I think I had the DVD somewhere I probably bought for five bucks at Blockbuster, previously owned. But if you can find it on a streaming service, I really hope it becomes available. The story is about a beekeeper who fights to keep his family away from danger. And uh, it's obviously a metaphor, deeply metaphorical, in the fact he's a beekeeper who's, you know, surrounded by all these hornets and yet he keeps them at bay. And similarly, he's trying to help his kids who are battling substance abuse and abusive lovers and all the rest of it. But it's just a, a beautiful film. I, one of the tweets somebody sent to me when I tweeted about Yuli's Gold, they said that I imagine that Peter Fonda was playing this role the way his dad Henry would have. And I think that's a, a really good way of saying it. Henry Fonda always seemed to imbue all of his characters with a certain sense of decency. And uh, Peter Fonda and Yuli's Gould is not only channeling his dad, but he seems to be playing a really fundamentally decent man. So rest in peace to uh, Peter Fonda and the Fonda family. And if you can watch Yuli's Gould, it's an absolute beauty. Richard Williams, the three-time Oscar and BAFTA-winning animator, famed for his work, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He has passed away the age of 86. He also worked on two Pink Panther films at Casino Royale, but his work as an animation director, which would cement his name in animation folklore. Critical and commercial hit was Rabbit, earned $330 million and became the first live-action animation hybrid film to win multiple Academy Awards since Mary Poppins in 1964. Two of the film's three Oscars went to Williams, who also won a visual effects BAFTA. I don't know the last time you've watched Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I came across it a couple years ago, Joe, just flipping the channels. I was on the road somewhere in a hotel. I'd love to watch it again. God, you can't understand how visually dazzling that movie is. And speaking of CNN's The Movies, they did have a quick snippet of it. And Robert Zemeckis said it was like the most exhausting experience of his life. It was so incredibly difficult making that movie. I can't imagine how how they did it with, you know, just all these characters interacting or like Roger Rabbit literally picking up a live action object and handing it to someone. Uh, I love that movie, though. Love the animation. It was one of my favorite movies as a kid. So I've seen it about 100 times. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, as a kid, it was just so funny. Bob Hoskins had been playing this uh, alcoholic detective. He was really funny. I mean, just the whole character of the rabbit, just so absurd, the whole Toontown. And Christopher Lloyd, of course, I loved him back to the future. It was so scary to see him as the villain in this one. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, polymath, whose various life pursuits include global diplomacy, activism, and writing Sherlock Holmes books, criticizing Quentin Tarantino for his vision of his friend Bruce Lee and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, beginning by noting he's a fan of Tarantino's films in general, adding, I attend each Tarantino film as if it were an event, knowing that his distillation of the 60s and 70s action movies will be much more entertaining than a simple homage. And that's why he writes the following. It disturbs me that Tarantino chose to portray Bruce in such a one-dimensional way. The John Wayne machismo attitude of Cliff, an aging stuntman who defeats the arrogant, uppity Chinese guy, harks back to the very stereotypes Bruce was trying to dismantle. Of course, the blonde, white, beefcake American can beat your fancy Asian chop socky dude because that foreign crap doesn't fly here. I might even go along with the skewered version of Bruce if that wasn't the only significant scene with him, if we'd also seen a glimpse of his other traits, of his struggle to be taken seriously in Hollywood. Alas, he was just another hay boy prop to the scene. I didn't, at the time seeing it, Joe, felt it was offensive, but once I read that, I said, you know what, there may be something to it. Uh, it's one thing to have a scene played for comedy and to have Bruce Lee pop up, but I think he would lose your right. He could have at least had another scene showing Bruce Lee rather than reducing him to a caricature. You agree? I want, uh, yeah, I agree. I think his character in the film, Tarantino intentionally made him one-dimensional, and it's a good conversation worth having. Yeah, absolutely. And lastly, a David Schwimmer lookalike sentenced to jail for theft. On Thursday, a UK judge sentencing Ross Geller doppelganger Abdullah Husseini to nine months in prison for committing theft and fraud. 
After Friends fans held a field day posting jokes with the beloved character, Schumer himself got in on the fun. The actor shared a video on social media proving he was in New York at the time, therefore could not have been the culprit in questions. Officers, I swear it wasn't me, he wrote on Twitter, accompanied by a video of him reenacting the surveillance footage of Husseini. How crazy is that? Guy looks just like David Schwimmer. Of all the actors, Joe, would you ever want to look like David Schwimmer? <laughs> no, I'd much rather look like a Joey Triviani type or even a Chandler Bing type. <laughs> Speaking, I like that call. Yeah, no statement from those doppelgangers. No, exactly. All right, there's your movie news and your review. Now it's time to get to the great Kristen Baldwin. On June 14th, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. A pleasure to bring in our special guest, Kristen Baldwin of Entertainment Weekly. She hosts the EW's Best of Shows podcast, which can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio.com, or wherever you get your shows. A fellow partner here of Cadence 13. And you can also follow her on Twitter, Kristen G. Baldwin. And uh, we're going to talk a lot of TV and lots of great things going on in the world. Kristen, thanks so much for coming on Cinephile. We really appreciate it. Happy to do it. Um, so I was reading my latest EW because I've been a subscriber for years. And uh, while I miss the weekly edition, the monthly edition is still fantastic. And of course, you're doing so much prolific writing online as well. So EW continues just in a different iteration. But I was loving all the um, ME um, prognostications and such. And I fear it's going to be <laughs> predictable just with like, the, the glut of nominations for, for Game of Thrones and Veep and with both shows ending. I feel like it's going to be awfully predictable. So rather than focus on that, I want to focus on the shows that I liked, uh, namely Barry. And, the, the, <laughs> and yeah. the fact that your prognostication has is Barry's not going to win because, listen, they're not going to be able to overcome the juggernaut that is Veep. They couldn't win Best Emmy Series when Veep wasn't involved. But as you pointed out, uh, Hayter obviously won before and Winkler won before. What I want to know is this. In what universe can we live in with supporting actor and I, I do like Tony Hale because I love Arrested Development so I'm so happy that Buster's getting Emmy recognition but he's already won before so I'm good with that I want to see Anthony Kerrigan win or Steven Root win in what universe do I have to live for either of those guys to win best supporting actor for Barry you know what I think you could live in our current universe um, I predicted Tony Hale simply because I do think that the you know, uh, Academy voters are nostalgic and Veep is, you know, not only a really funny and one of the funniest, if not the funniest shows, uh, comedies of this year. Uh, it also, you know, it's, it's ending, the, it ended this year. And so people are sentimental. Uh, I think it's possible though, like that there could be an upset. Somebody like Anthony Kerrigan, even getting a nomination means that there's enough nomination, uh, enough awareness of his performance and how great he is. Um, that, you know, there could be a, a, a swell for him. Unfortunately, you know, there are several other uh, nominees from Barry in that category, as you mentioned, um, Winkler and Stephen Root. So they could they could split the vote. Who can say? Um, I, I don't think you have to be living in an alternate reality where one of them gets it. Uh, it could also be that, you know, Winkler won last year. So maybe they'll just give it to him again. 
Yeah, I would be happy with that too, because like you said, he'd, he'd never won before, so it's, you know, the recognition coming late perhaps for a great career, I'd be happy with that. Rami was one of my favorite shows, Kristen. Unfortunately, Rami Yusuf ignored it in all the major categories. I knew it would be a, a dark horse, certainly a show on Hulu, and there's just so much good content out there. And I, and listen, Ray Seahorn, I'm, I'm astonished and mystified she wasn't nominated for uh, Better Call Saul. Like, uh, of all the snubs, like Rami's a show I love, and again, his personal attachment to, but just objectively, I'm like, how on earth? Can Ray Seahorn not get nominated, particularly this season for Better Call Saul? Can you? I, I, I know you're going to tell me there's lots of great talent out there, but seriously, there had to be a way for Ray Seahorn to get nominated this year. I just, I, I don't understand it. It makes me so angry. I mean, the, the, the snub that continues to make me the angriest is all the snubs related to the Good Fight from CBS All Access. Uh, Christine Bransky and everyone in that cast, like it's just a crime. But then in the supporting actress uh, drama category, the fact that Rhea Seahorn did not get a nomination this year is just infuriating because like she did some of her most amazing work without even having dialogue at certain moments. Like there are parts of her performance that I just rewatched over and over again because I couldn't believe it. Like I couldn't believe how good it was. That said, it's Game of Thrones final season and several other actors, uh, you know, Gwendolyn Christie, for example, uh, was somebody who submitted herself in that category because HBO didn't submit. Um, but like, how does Julia Garner from Ozark slip in, which she's a great actress. She was great on uh, Dirty John as well. But how does she slip in, but not Rhea Seahorn? I just I don't get it. I know, it's very mystifying. Um, another show which I like a lot, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, was, of course, awarded in the first season, uh, but now I don't think they're going to be able to win because they're up against Veep in Veep's final season. Julie Louis-Dreyfus is going to win her eighth Emmy or whatever it is. I, I, I was just curious, Christian, your thought as a TV critic for Entertainment Weekly, just your thought on the second season overall. I'll be honest with you, I wasn't going through a great time in my life when I was binge-watching the second season, so maybe I just wasn't in the mood for uh, light and frilly. I, I loved the first season, and I thought the episodes where they went to Paris were really well done, but I Overall, I didn't feel like the second season was as strong, particularly the final episodes. Am I alone on this? Did you think it was great still? You know, I thought that this, the the pacing of the story uh, across the, you know, 10, 13 episodes was quite slow, <laughs> like five or six episodes in with, you know, when I wrote my review, I think I had seen five or six episodes and basically nothing had happened. Um, that said, it's a beautiful show to look at and it's well-written and well-performed and, you know, there's still a lot to enjoy. I do think that by the end of the season, a lot of interesting things happen, but yeah, it, it was not, uh, narratively, I didn't feel like it was as strong as season one. All right, good. I'm glad we're in cahoots on that. Because as you noted, the yeah. acting is all strong. Obviously, Rachel Brosnahan's great, and I'm glad she's nominated Tony Shalhoub and the whole crew. But yeah, narratively, I would agree with you. It definitely took some time getting there. Uh, two shows which yeah. I haven't had a chance to see, but they're universally critically acclaimed, starring female protagonists. So if I've got to choose only one, should I devote some time to Fleabag or Russian Doll? Oh, Fleabag, by far. I am in the minority. I did not enjoy Russian Doll. Um uh, I, uh, I don't know. I just found it. I just didn't care. Like the whole point of Russian doll is that, you know, Natasha Leone's character keeps dying and has to, and keeps waking up at the same party and she has to figure out why that's happening. And the thing is, I just didn't care. I didn't care. Um, 
halfway through or maybe three or four episodes in, she meets another person who is still dying. And I was way more interested in that guy, uh, but he was not the main character. So it just wasn't my cup of tea, but I was in the minority for sure. Fleabag, however, um, is sort of a, a perfect six hour, uh, you know, just work of television. It's kind of the finale is basically perfect. Every, the opening scene of the first episode of season two is, uh, I just don't even, I can't think of enough uh, fawning adjectives. It's really, it's astounding. And so, yeah, I would say a hundred percent go flea bag. It's an easier binge. It's shorter, uh, which matters. Um, but it is, it is far more emotionally resonant. At least it was for me uh, than uh, Russian doll. Well, that's good to know. I definitely will try to find some time for Fleabag. Of all the nominations, Kristen, is there a show? And like you said, we can always talk about snubs or shows that we feel passionately about. But you mentioned The Good Fight, the Christine Baranski show, which you wish had gotten more recognition. What's a show that you feel is overrated, that whenever you see the nominations, you go, oh, not this again? <laughs> huh, that's interesting. Uh, let me see. Look, I mean... Do I really think that all nine actors uh, from Game of Thrones needed to be nominated? Probably not. Um, <laughs> I, w- I would probably also say I, I'm also probably in the minority on this, but I have 100% turned on This Is Us. Uh, I It now makes me angrier than pretty much any show on television. So the fact that Milo Ventimiglia, Chris Sullivan, which again, like if you're going to nominate one supporting actor in that uh, in that series, you should nominate uh, uh, Justin Hartley, who plays Kevin, um, who has a much harder job than I think the character of Toby. Anyway, so I definitely think This Is Us is only, you know, uh, it's almost it's kind of like a unicorn in that it's a hit broadcast drama. And so I think the Academy just keeps nominating it like sort of out of yay broadcast TV can still do something right. Um, But generally I would say that that show does not come near the level of quality of the other shows uh, uh, in the, in the category. Yeah. It's a, it's a good one you picked because I don't watch it. I met Justin Hartley once I was uh, calling the celebrity softball game for ESPN and Justin was playing in it and he came over to me and he recognized me. And, and when he said he was from this is us, I said, I gotta be honest with you, man, I, I don't watch the show, but, but everybody tells me like, it's the last great broadcast show. This is like a couple of years ago. And I remember thinking, well, he's obviously very handsome and his uh, lady was very uh, attractive as well. And I said, well, how could this guy not be a huge success? He clearly looks like a million bucks. He's, he's, you know, very kind and friendly. And then I never actually mm-hmm. seen the show. So now, now that you tell me he didn't even get nominated, now I'm even more upset. Hartley, he's the best part of that show, and I don't even watch the show. <laughs> exactly. And he was also on one of the best terrible soap operas of all time, Passions, uh, which ran for, uh, I believe, four years on NBC. It was a supernatural soap opera, and he was great on it. So um, <laughs> daytime drama. Uh, so, yeah, he. I, if anyone's going to be nominated, give it to him. That show is basically dead to me now i've just i decided recently like as i was falling asleep one night i was like i'm not gonna watch anymore i don't have to and i'm not going to and it was very liberating no i love that you did that because um oftentimes i think people get too attached to the show like modern family obviously is not as funny as it once was i remember with homeland you know i loved the first season Mm -hmm. and the second season was right and by the third season i said i'm not going to keep doing this to myself like i don't it's not like a sports team where i feel like i have to keep watching like no i'm done like it was great it no longer is it's been fun (laughs) yeah exactly Um, and like life's too short 
Yeah, exactly. There's too much other good stuff out there, especially in today's world. Uh, speaking of the fall show preview, um, I enjoyed reading your synapses uh, of all these different shows. I'm going to run through a few of these here. Unicorn with Walton <laughs> Goggins, the number one pick. I, first, I was just shocked. I mean, obviously, I know Goggins' work from uh, you know The Hateful Eight and the show he did with McBride. So I'm like, I can't believe Walton Goggins is your number one for the most uh, fall show preview to watch. It's called Unicorn. Sunnyside with Cal Penn. We got Deputy with Stephen Dorff, as you guys put it, you and Darren, the Dorff... Uh Dorf Renaissance here continues after seeing him. Dorfassance. Yeah, Dorfassance. Yes. Uh, Perfect Harmony. I've always liked Bradley Whitford, so I'm glad to see he's in the show, Perfect Harmony. And uh, Tommy Edie Falco, which you wrote, cash that check, Edie. You deserve it. So I'm guessing, <laughs> I'm guessing that's not a great one. I mean, I, mean, I love Carmela Soprano, but I'm telling you that's not a good one. First, uh, just so you know, those, you know, those were reactions based on the trailers. We hadn't seen the full episodes, and those were just broadcast shows. Um, we, you you know, every year, Darren and I look at the new broadcast shows and rank the trailers because they all come out in the same week or so during Upfronts Week. And, um, you know, having now seen all of the shows, with the exception of whatever Edie Talco's show is, because that got moved to mid-season and they haven't sent out screeners, um, I can tell you that The Unicorn is still one of my... Uh, top picks for the fall. Um, it is very funny. Uh, Walton Goggins, you know, it's so delightful to see him go from like prestige character actor to single camera sitcom leading man on, on CBS. And it's got a really great ensemble. Um, it's uh, Rob Corddry and Michaela Watkins. Uh, and so it is definitely like the smartest CBS sitcom uh, on offer in terms of the new ones. Um, and so, yeah, it, that one I think has the most promise in terms of broadcast comedies, yes. Well, that's good to know. I mean, it, it's interesting, and I, I'm sure you get this all the time, right? People go, oh, TV critic, what a job. You just sit there and watch TV. But I, I completely think it must be mind-numbing because I think amidst all the great television, and at heart you're a writer. You're not a TV watcher. You're a writer, and you're just your, your discipline happens right. to be being a TV. So being a writer is always challenging, thinking of different adjectives, different angles of how to write, you mm -hmm. know, obviously trying to think of some creative. And I think in today's world, a TV critic, I mean, there's just so much to watch. Like for you and Darren, I would think it must be overwhelming at times. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, certainly it beats coal mining, but I would say that like, it's even, even with, you know, we're working on our fall, uh, fall TV issue now, and it is pretty impossible. Like it's, basically impossible for any one person to watch all the new shows because in part because a lot of them just aren't ready yet or they're just too many. And so I would have to, you know, be up seven days straight. Um, and, you know, even then I probably wouldn't be able to see everything. But I did manage to watch in the last three weeks or so about 31 or 32 new shows. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, I do understand that that is like a sweet gig. On the other hand, I was like, oh, God, do I have to watch it? Like, there were certain <laughs> things where it was, I was really like, I, I had to like, you know, emotionally psych myself up to watch, uh, you know, certain like, I'm not a big, you know, CBS procedural person or like, uh, yeah, so the, it, it, I definitely had to like, you know, bite my, you know, bite the bullet and, and get through some of these shows. But uh, uh, in general, there was nothing, you know, that was so egregiously awful that I, you know, wanted to throw my computer. Um, but there, you know, I was able to choose, you know, about 10 shows out of that group as shows that I would recommend that people watch. 
I can't imagine. You're right. A CBS procedural. Like I'm, I'm already vomiting having to think about it. Actually, I had to watch that. That would be very tough to do. Um, you know, yeah. Rip Torn passed away a few weeks ago, and, and it reminds me just how much I love the Larry Sanders show. And um, you know, a lot of shows that I love of my youth. You know, people are aware of obviously with Seinfeld or you know. Kirby Enthusiasm right. or Oz, you know, The Sopranos is my favorite shows. But the Larry Sanders show to this day, Kristen, I'm upset that more people don't know it, haven't seen it. And I, I just think it's, you know, this is a term you often hear. You know this is a TV critic saying a show was ahead of its time. But seriously, if ever there was a show that was ahead of its time, I think it's a Larry Sanders show. And I, I, I re-watched it when Shandling passed away a few years ago. And I just, you know, went through all 86 episodes again. It's still incredible. I don't think I have the time now to do it again with, with Rip passing away. But I just wanted to get your thoughts with the Larry Sanders show and just how uh, influential it was. Because I think certainly The Sopranos and everyone points to that show on HBO being so ma- monumental, and I, it's my favorite dramatic series. But in terms of comedy series, to me, Larry Sanders' show, it predates everything, whether it's Ricky Gervais' shows yeah. or so many other shows. It, it was just so brilliant for its time. And it's also a show that, uh, you know, comedians really respect. You know, it's very influential among comedians and comedy writers, which is, you know, and that's where we get a lot of our good, you know, comedy going forward. So, you know, Larry Sanders show is definitely a cult uh, phenomenon that people who love it, love it intensely. But it's also, you know, it's also always been a thing that um, shows about show business in general um, are usually a little too inside baseball for a mass audience. You know, people just aren't that in as intrigued in how a late night talk show works uh, as maybe those of us who, you know, watch TV for a living are, or those of us who write about, you know, entertainment in general. That said, yes, that show was incredibly influential and ahead of its time. And it lasted longer, you know, uh, than it really had any business lasting at the time that it was out. So I do think that, um, you know, it, it's legacy remains, but yeah, it is something that like you do wonder like, cause I, is it even available to stream now? Cause I, now that I think about it, I'm not even sure where I would find it if I wanted to watch it. Yeah, I mean, I, I still got it all the, all the DVDs. And even there's two, like yeah. there's the complete set. And then San, I mean, Shandling put out a not just the best of Larry Sanders show, which is like 22 episodes and like interviews with like Sharon Stone and Odenkirk and all the rest of it. But you're right. I don't, I think HBO had it available for a little bit of time, but you're right. It's yeah. not available via streaming, which is I a shame. I think it's actually, yeah, according to a quick Google search, it looks like you can watch it on like HBO uh, Go or HBO Now. But yeah, I'm not sure how complete. Um, you know, how complete uh, these, you know, the series are. But, and, you know, that's a, there, there are still a lot of series that when you look back and you're like, why, why can I not? Like, it was a huge deal fairly recently when Golden Girls uh, came to Hulu, you know, and like, right. that's a show that is incredibly influential. Um, but there's still a lot of these shows that, um, and, you know, Designing Women just recently came to Hulu. Like, these are important shows that haven't been as, available to people and new audiences, um, you know, due to long, long sort of arcane rights issues that just haven't been settled. And, you know, you think about the friends assance that has happened because it's been on Netflix. Um, you know, that could happen for a lot of shows if, uh, if they were able to get on uh, a streaming platform like that. Yeah, no question about it. Um, last one, just for you on a personal level, is there a, you know, your favorite shows of all time? Again, as a TV critic, I respect your matter. So all time, your favorite shows. What are a few maybe uh, popular ones, maybe not so popular ones people should watch? 
I mean, the best show of all time, without question, is The Wire. Um, and, you know, basically anyone who says otherwise is wrong. Um, and if you haven't watched The Wire, the only thing you need to do right now is go watch The Wire. Like, don't, you know, don't ask me for any other binge recommendations until you've seen The Wire, because it is uh, honestly, you know, one of the most beautifully and intensely complex and uh, rich narratives across five or six seasons. And really, uh, you know, it's a Dickens novel come to life set in, uh, uh, you know, at the time, modern day Baltimore. And it's just something that essentially, if you've never seen it, you do not have the right, like one of our writers at EW, he's never seen it. And I'm like, well, then all of your opinions about TV do not matter because you don't have the frame of reference uh, to say uh, what the best show is of all time because you've never seen The Wire. So that's my screed. That's what I I always say. Um, You know, in terms of like comedies, I, you know, I do often think about, you know, I relate situations in real life to situations that happened on Friends. Um, That's a show that's very deeply ingrained in my, uh, in my psyche. Um, I have a lot of really like shows that I love deeply that are uh, not necessarily good shows, but were very influential. Like the original Beverly Hills 90210 is, you know, one of my all time favorites. I'm watching the new, you know, meta reboot, which I'm enjoying heavily. Um, Let's see other all time favorites, probably like Buffy, the vampire slayer, uh, you know, Hmm. Trying like I have a lot of favorite shows that uh, it's for whatever reason it's often hard to think of them on the spot. But those I guess would I would say are my uh, my so-called my life, maybe something like that. No, I did I did enjoy my so-called life. Um, yeah. You know I I do like I do think it didn't quite hold up uh, as well as it could have, um, but it is definitely you know one of the all-time. Uh, most sort of influential teen dramas for its one short season. It definitely uh, did have uh, a lot of impact. Um, and, How about Freaks and Geeks? You know, Freaks and I've Geeks, loved, one of the all-timers. How about Freaks and Geeks? Yeah. 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 Freaks and Geeks, yeah. I never really... I saw Freaks and Geeks. I, you know, enjoyed it, but it never really grabbed me emotionally. Um, yeah. You know, Mad Men is a show that I really loved, but it's not one of my, I mean, I guess it would probably be in my top 15, um, but it's not one that, like, I think about uh, periodically. Like, I still think about The Wire and um, think about, you know, the characters and wonder wonder about them, you know. Um, going back, you know, watching The Sopranos, it's, it has some really incredible seasons and some not so great seasons, but um, it's definitely, you know, probably in the top 10 as well. Um, yeah, so, you know, it kind of depends on my mood on any given day, but yes, um, those those are the ones that come to mind. Uh, well, certainly, a list of very strong movies and uh, TV shows. And as far as this year's ceremony is concerned, of course, you'll be all over along with Entertainment Weekly, Sunday, September 22nd. I know it's not going to happen. I'd just love to see Shits Creek win something, just so we can actually hear the words Shits Creek said on Fox. That would be... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think if anyone could pull it out, it might be Catherine O'Hara as a surprise uh, win. But, you know, uh, it's... Uh, 
this is the kind of show where I think you have to go into it emotionally prepared, knowing that the nomination is the victory. Yeah, I think that's a good way of saying it. Um, this was fantastic, Kristen. We'd love to do it again soon. Once again, you can follow sure. her on Twitter, Kristen G. Baldwin, hosts EW's Best of Shows. She's a fabulous TV critic for Entertainment Weekly. You can read her stuff both in the print edition, which is now monthly, and, of course, online as well. Joe, uh, you came highly recommended via my man Joe, and you brought the heat. Thanks so much, Kristen. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear it. Thank you for having me. Mount Rushmore. Now it's the Mount Rushmore of movies inspired by music. Good topic here, uh, thought up by Joe, in honor of Blinded by the Light, which clearly is influenced heavily by Springsteen. The first choice, I'm going to go with Wayne's World, because a movie clearly inspired by music that Mike Myers and Dana Carvey loved of that era. I mean, these guys are musicians in their own right. You can't think of Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody without thinking of those guys headbanging in the car, which Myers said he used to always do as a kid, uh, living in Scarborough, Ontario, driving downtown Toronto, banging his head. Wayne's World's a great one. Walk the Line, I love that movie. Obviously, a musical biopic of a Johnny Cash, won an Oscar for Reese Witherspoon, playing June Carter Cash. Uh, fantastic film and really well done by James Mangold, who was the writer-director. He was such a star with that. Um, other movies also in here. Listen, Inside Lewin Davis, it's not Pete Cone Brothers, but I think it's pretty darn good, and it doesn't get mentioned nearly as much as some of their other movies. So I'm going to include Inside Lewin Davis on my list as well. And lastly, Love and Mercy, which is a terrific movie. Again, did not get seen by enough people. Paul Dano and John Cusack both playing Brian Wilson in the movie. Paul Giamatti is fantastic, as he always is, playing the uh, lecherous character in this case, who is the manager who tries to take advantage of Brian Wilson. But if you're a fan of the Beach Boys, I really think that's a very, very special movie and a very nice film. So Inside Lewin Davis, Love and Mercy, Walk the Line, and Wayne's World. That's my Mount Rushmore movies inspired by music. Now I'm going to wait for Joe's list. I'm hoping he drops a little straight out of Compton or Hedwig and the Angry Inch. What do you got? <laughs> Oh, boy. I love your picks. Mine are totally different. Okay. Uh, so I got Velvet Goldmine as my first, just because I'm a very big David Bowie fan. So I, I threw that in there. Uh, and then I have Amadeus, 1984 Best Oscar winner, I believe. And then the Blues Brothers. And then my last one, Curveball, I'm coming at you with School of Rock, Jack Black. And I was a drummer uh, around the same age as when that movie came out of those kids. So, like, I really, it really identified with me. But, you know, I've never actually seen a School of Rock. I'm aware of it. Richard Linklater and, uh, like you said, Jack Black playing the fun teacher. I remember hearing good things. It's just one of those movies that just missed my purview. I want to say it came out in September, so it was tough around the fall movie season. But you highly recommend it, huh? Highly recommend it, 100%. Sil Sarah Silverman is in it as well. But it's just one of those feel-good movies that you can watch with anyone in the family and people will laugh at for different reasons and at different times but it's very very good all right good list there of mount rushmore movies inspired by music definitely let us know what you think um tweet us as always cinephile pod or adnan s Ferk, and let us know what you think of those selections the butter binge all right, and we close up shop, as always, with the Bada Binge. In case you're new to the podcast, what we're doing here is recapping 
episodes of The Sopranos, and so happy to see all those comments. Keep those comments going. I'm glad you guys like this. I'll start by saying this. Uh, season four is my least favorite season of The Sopranos, so we've been going about three or four episodes per. I'm going to fly through six this time, because season four to me is, is not a particularly strong one, so there's not too much I want to talk about here. For All Debts Public and Private is the first episode written by David Chase. Uh, that involves Christopher getting vengeance on somebody who was not kind to his father. Uh, there's also No Show, which is episode two, written by Chase and Terrence Winter. Christopher, which is season four, episode three, that one's co-written by Michael Imperioli, who had the story he wrote and the teleplay. And in the book, Alan Sepinwald, Matt Zoller cites his excellent book, The Soprano Sessions. These guys write, masterpieces can have flaws. The White Album has Honey Pie. The Godfather franchise has three. The Sopranos has Christopher. It is the nadir of the show's fascination with Italian-American representation and the self-esteem and of the show, period. They hated that episode. I didn't think it was that bad, but again, I'm not one to... Uh, focus in on it either. The episode that I love is episode four. It's called The Weight, and this involves Johnny Sack and his devotion to Ginny. He's hugely just outraged by who made this joke but having a 95-pound mole removed from her ass, uh, a comment just about how overweight she is. And so it's a black comic farce about stubborn pride, inappropriate humor, and how much one man is willing to endanger out of devotion to the woman he loves. Nobody seems to understand why a man would risk business over an insult directed at his wife. Johnny takes things way too far, administering a harsh beating, averting his own death, and Ralphie's only after discovering that Ginny has been stress-eating hidden junk food. But the impulse to defend the honor of the woman he adores is nobler than anything the wise guys are used to seeing. Even at one point, Johnny and Ginny, their bond is somehow tighter despite her lying. It's a rare moment of pure spousal love on a show that suggests even non-mob marriages are complicated at best. Johnny's feelings for his wife effectively complement Bobby's ongoing grief over Karen. Honestly, I do love the character of Johnny Sack, played by Vince Corotola, who I took my car recently to get serviced here in our new home of North Jersey. And there is a... Uh, a framed picture of Vince Corotola that hangs there. So I'm so happy to know that my Buick Enclave is being serviced at the same place that one of Vince's cars are. I asked the guy what kind of car he drives. He said he did have a Benz for a while, so I could see him driving his Mercedes around. But if you're a fan of the actor and of Johnny Sack, he was so good in this episode for all those reasons these guys illustrated. Even he says at one point, to me, she's beautiful, Rubenesque. That woman is my life. To think she's being mocked. He's just so outraged these guys are making fun of his wife for being obese. There's also another plot here about Carmelo, Carmelo, excuse me, and Furio, and the fact that she dances with him in one of the funnier scenes of the entire show. Even after the music is turned off, it doesn't go away. Carmela clearly is in love with Furio, and Tony is completely oblivious to the fact that there's this mating dance going on right before him. Next episode is Pio oh Mai. Uh, this is about Tony and his horse. Again, I didn't think it was particularly strong, but I do love that last shot. Again, I'll read what Matt and Alan had to say. The episode's most striking tableau comes at the very end with a titular horse as Tony contentedly smokes a cigar and whispers reassurances to Piomai as the rain falls outside and a goat wanders in. He seems more at peace here than in any scenes involving friends and family. He's now responsible for the horse emotionally, if not financially, but his face says this is fine by him. The animal is just the thing he wanted. He didn't have to pay a dime to get her. Even in the footnotes these guys write, this scene features one of the show's great closing shots, an image lit and framed like an old master's painting with intimations of the Garden of Eden and Jesus in the manger. Gandolfini particularly striking in scenes like this where Tony is alone or at least not interacting with other people and simply being in the moment. Uh, one more episode to focus on here. 
Uh, this would be Everybody Hurts. Uh, season 4, Episode 6. This one's written by Michael Imperioli and directed by Steve Buscemi. Biggest development is Gloria Trillo's suicide by hanging. Deliberately muted. Carmela shares that half-forgotten gossip with Tony. And you can see how it infects him. And now he just wants to inflict more misery on his loved ones. Uh, you've got Tony responding to the news by overcompensating with good deeds. He signs a living trust for Carmella, gets his cousin Brian new suits, Billy Joel tickets, takes Janice out to dinner to compliment her on choosing Bobby, and arranges a loan to finance Artie's new venture. The stuff with Artie is fantastic, though. Uh, as the guys write, making like Travis Bickle to rehearse planned threats against his would-be partner Jean-Philippe, the brother of New Vesuvia hostess Elodie Colbert. And Artie here just cannot help himself. He's just too idiotic. And he's even got his earring pulled out. His midlife crisis earring is pulled up by Jean-Philippe. And he even tells Tony that Tony's just so smart that he knew he would screw up. Even when Tony thinks he's doing the right thing, he's still using people. And his concluding session with Melfi suggests he's had enough of examining himself. And that Artie is right. Artie suggests Tony was acting from self-interest. Just like he knew what would happen to Davies Scatino in the executive game. Once again, Tony is the python. He's the scorpion. And he pounces when he knows what needs to be done. Any thoughts, Joe, the first half of season four of The Sopranos? Yeah, love the Pio Mai episode. And I know we're not quite there yet, but when we get to that episode, I have a lot of opinions on his disappearance. Furio, definitely one of the stronger supporting characters, definitely in The Sopranos. That is the Bada Binge. Thank you, as always, so much for listening to Cinephile. Please do give us some love. Subscribe, rate, review, spread the word. Do what you can. Tweet us, let you know what you like, what you don't like. Subscribe right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio.com. Once again, we're available everywhere, so please do support Cinephile. Until next time, I'll see you at the movies. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.